church was born in political oppression and it thrives under persecution. Do you know what happens when opposition comes to God's people? It has a purging effect on the church. Those who refuse to pay any price for being a Christ follower will eventually be exposed as Christians in name only. You know what that means? We will be fewer, but we will be truer. Welcome to Resonate with Trent Griffith, Senior Pastor of Harvest Bible Chapel in Granger, Indiana. I'm Aaron Paulus. Today, we'll be hearing the first part of the final message in the Awakening series. If you've been with us over the last few weeks, you've heard some messages on humility, revival praying, seeking the face of God, and the pivot point of revival, which is repentance. If you missed any of those messages, you can hear them all online at harvestgranger.org. Today, we'll be answering the question, how should Christians respond in times of political oppression or opposition. Pastor Trent will give us four godly responses that will be helpful to all of us when we face opposition. Here's Pastor Trent. Open your Bible to 2 Chronicles chapter 36. It's the last chapter in 2 Chronicles. We've been studying the times in history, biblical history and even American history, when God has done something amazing to awaken his people. Now, the book of 2 Chronicles that we're reading, it is like a roller coaster at Cedar Point. It is highs and lows, and it's just the history of God's people chronicled for us of seasons of incredible awakening and seasons of incredible sin and God's reaction to all of that. And so we're coming to the last hill, going down the last slope of this roller coaster. We're going to find out how it ends today. And um, uh, I've entitled the message today, How to Live as an awakened person in a sleepy world, all right? We've been learning this, uh, this Bible verse. We've actually challenged you to memorize it. Does anybody think you're close to memorizing this verse? Do you know what it is? What's the reference? Habakkuk. Who, who has ever memorized a verse in Habakkuk? But Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 2, if you know it, even if you don't know it, I'll let you cheat this morning. Let's all say it together. Here's our prayer for an awakening. Oh Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. Oh Lord, do I fear? In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. I want to know, who are the people in the room right now who are the people that are notorious for having trouble waking up? Who, who are those people? Just confession in church. Uh, any, any parents want to nominate your children? Uh, any, okay, any, any children want to nominate your parents, okay? I actually saw this happen this past week. I had a few days where I got to go see my mother in Oklahoma this week, and uh, she's 72 years old. And one of the things that I did for her is I updated her cell phone. Um, I updated it to a flip phone, which would give you a clue as to what the old phone looked like, okay? So I updated, she said, I can use a flip phone. So, so um, I spent hours going down to the store, calling customer service, programming the phone. And it's, because it's a flip phone, I put in all of her contacts. Do you remember how you used to do that on a flip phone? You know, 333-522-6444. You know, you had to get the, the letters in there that way. So I spent hours doing this on Tuesday night. 
And after about four hours of working with this thing, it was ready to go, and I trained her how to use it, and we practiced, and I called her on my phone to understand, and she can you call me? And we did all this. She's 72 years old. And so um, it was late. It was about 11 o'clock. I was tired. I was worn out. I, I went to bed, and my mom was still kind of wired. She's, uh, she, she's not been sleeping well, and, and it's been a hard time for her. Um, and so... Um, she had some prescription sleeping pills, and I was like, Mom, just take a pill, get a good night's sleep, and we'll get up tomorrow and have a great day. And so she took one quarter of a sleeping pill, and it put her to sleep. The next morning, I woke up. She was uh, passed out asleep in the chair, and I just kind of left her alone there. After a couple hours, she got up. She went to the bed, and she slept for another couple hours. It was like 11 o'clock. She finally wakes up and says, you know, she's kind of stumbling around a little bit, and she said, oh, I just don't feel good. I don't feel like I'm awake. I don't know if I'm ever going to get awake. I took one of these pills. I just need a cup of coffee. So she went in the kitchen. She fixed a cup of coffee. She brought it in, and she sat down in her chair, and her cell phone was there, so she picked it up and promptly dropped it into (laughs) the cup of coffee. And have you ever had one of those events where you see something about to happen, and you're just like, no! You're trying to grab it for it. So she baptized her cell phone. And uh, that was a bad day, okay? Sleepy people make bad decisions. Sleepy people are dangerous people. And we are people who are awakened living in a sleepy land where people are making some really bad decisions. And so we've studied this pattern here. And so the most famous awakening verse in all the Bible is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 14. It says, if my people, these are God's people, this is a verse not written to the world, not written, written to unbelievers, this is written to the church, written to God's people. If my people who are called by my name will do four things humble themselves, pray, seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then God promises to do three things, to hear from heaven, forgive our sin, and heal our land. And so we've looked at four different kings in Second Chronicles, a king who humbled himself, that was Rehoboam in chapter 12, and yet that's all he did. He didn't go much further than that. He didn't see God's face, he didn't turn. So we looked at a king who prayed, that was Jehoshaphat in chapter 12. 20, and he um, prayed that prayer. Do you remember what he prayed? Lord, we don't know what to do, so our eyes are on you. When you don't know what to do, that's a good prayer for you to pray. And then we looked at a king that sought God's face. Do you remember who that was? Josiah in chapter 34. And then last week, we looked at a king that turned. He repented. He found the pivot point of revival, right? He turned his back on sin, turned his face toward God. Sin is when we turn our face toward sin and our back on God, so we've got to turn. And God promises if we do that, then we will experience an awakening. So today we come to, I just want to look at these last three words of this verse. Heal their land. Let's talk about what that means a little bit. Because we're so familiar with this verse, sometimes I don't even think we, we stop long enough to consider the words. If we are God's people... The question is, what is our land? Do Christians have some dirt that belongs to them? Um, Back when this verse was written, it was written to God's people who actually had a promised land to them. It was actually talking about dirt. But if we say that this verse still applies to us, then the question is, what is our land? First of all, I want you to understand our land is not the United States of America. 
as much as we love our country, pledge allegiance, Christians don't own America. You understand that? We don't have property rights in America. Um, Christians don't have um, Christians don't have geopolitical boundaries. We, there's Christians in America. There's Christians even in Texas. And uh, in other part, part, other foreign countries, there, there are Christians there. And we don't have a spot on the planet that belongs to us, right? We're not bound by geopolitical boundaries. We don't have a language. We don't have a currency. We don't have a president, a Supreme Court, or a king. We, we do have King Jesus, but not a, not a, a person on the planet who's a king. So, so what is our land? Um, let's try to figure that out by looking at this verse. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 11 says this. But you, speaking to God's people, you are a chosen race, not an ethnic race, because there are all kinds of ethnicities from every tribe and tongue and nation come the people of God. But you're chosen because we have a common father. God. Almighty is our Father, and we are brothers and sisters. We are a chosen race. We're a royal priesthood, which means that we have access to God, direct access to God and the family treasure. We're a priest. You don't have to go through a man to get your sin forgiven or your prayer answered. You go straight to God. We're a royal priesthood, and we are a holy nation, not, not America. God calls us his nation. He is our king. And he says we are a people for his own possession. That means that God has purchased us. Of all the people in the world, he purchased us for his own possession. And by the way, he paid a very high price for you and me. The blood of his own son. That means that you are valued by God far beyond what you're actually worth. You are a people of God's own possession. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. And I urge you, here's another description, as sojourners. Do you know what a sojourner is? A sojourner is a temporary resident in a land to which he does not belong. You and I, as Christians, are living in a land to which we do not belong. We're just passing through. And we are citizens of a country that we have yet to visit. He says, you're sojourners. And then look at this word. You're exiles. Do you know what an exile is? We're about to see it in the Old Testament, but he applies that to us. An exile is someone who has been removed and stripped from all of his rights and living under political oppression from a foreign ruler as a servant or a slave. That's who God says you are. And in that situation, here's what he tells you to do. Abstain from passions of the flesh. Am I the only one that has any passion? Do you have any passions of the flesh? Passions of the flesh which wage war against you. You know what that means? No matter how you're oriented, no matter who you're attracted to, no matter what you think you're wanting, there are boundaries on what God wants you to, to feed yourself. He wants you to guard your appetites. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession. You're sojourners and you're exiles. So the question is, what's the land? 
that God promises to heal. The land can simply be summed up as this. It is the territory that we have influence over. We lost some territory in the land which we are now living as sojourners and exiles in. And so we need to understand that as, as, a, as a people, um, our land is sick. God says that if we'll do those four things, he will heal our land. So the question is, if, if our land is the territory that we influence, what does the healing look like? And does it mean the dirt is sick? Does it, does it mean the, the people are sick? Does it mean the, the nation is sick? What does it mean? Well, I think it's very simple that we can understand that the land which we occupy is spiritually diseased. It has an infection. And there are symptoms that crop up from time to time that indicate for us that we are living in a land that is spiritually sick. The Supreme Court's ruling to legalize gay marriage was simply the latest symptom of the spiritual disease that's in the land. When did, when did this land get sick? Well, it's always kind of had a cough and a cold, I think, but somewhere around the time that Trent Griffith was born, everything started going in the toilet. I'm telling you what. I was born in 1967. Does anybody here remember 1967? Some of you were around, but you don't remember it because you were smoking stuff and drinking stuff. And I mean, it was just a bad time back in the 60s. And I, I've kind of studied the history books. It's like sometime around the time I was born, everything started to get really sick. That's when divorce laws were relaxed. That's when adultery became kind of part of the culture. That's when pornography started to become the wallpaper of our society. And that's when homosexually began to be tolerated. And then in the 80s, kind of accepted. And then in the 90s, encouraged. And here we are in 2015. And now it's promoted and legalized. And while that's been going on, Christians who, if they were not believed, were at least respected... And then we got into the 90s, and it was almost as if we were tolerated. But then we got into the 2000s, and now here we are today, where we're seen as a threat and dangerous to the culture. All of that is symptomatic of the spiritual disease that we have. And our, our heart is that God would once again send an awakening to which he would heal our land. So how should we as God's people respond to what happened with the Supreme Court ruling legalizing gay marriage? I want to suggest to you four things. Number one, we will not panic or fear. Stop freaking out. God is still on his throne. The Supreme Court is not supreme. And the president is not sovereign. God still reigns. God hasn't lost an ounce of his power. The Supreme Court did not design, invent, or define marriage. Therefore, it has no right to redefine it or terminate it or change its conditions. 
Marriage is an invention and a design by God. Now, what happens certainly may lead to those of us who are God's people being marginalized and labeled and possibly even punished for what we believe, but that is to be expected when we are sojourners and exiles living in a land to which we don't belong. As a matter of fact, what happened in one sense could be good news for the church because the church was born in political oppression and it thrives under persecution. Do you know what happens when opposition comes to God's people? It has a purging effect on the church. You know what that means? Those who refuse to pay any price for being a Christ follower will eventually quit acting like they're following. Those people who refuse to take the Bible seriously and let God define what they believe and determine how they behave, they'll eventually stop showing up. And they'll eventually be exposed as Christians in name only. You know what that means? We will be fewer, but we will be truer as a church to, to believe what we say we believe. Here's the second thing. We will affirm what God says in the Bible about marriage and sexuality. In case you were wondering, nothing that goes on around here is going to change. The message is not going to change. Our confidence in God's Word is not going to change. We are going to teach what the Bible says about marriage and sexuality. And if you're not a Christian, we're so glad you came today. I hope you have a learner's heart. Maybe you're just wondering about who are these crazy Christians and what do they believe? Can I just kind of tell you what the Bible says about marriage and sexuality? First of all, realize that the Bible actually begins with a wedding. And the Bible ends with a wedding. The Bible is a holy book that tells about a holy God who sent his holy son to die on a cross to absorb the sin of unholy people who can now be filled with the Holy Spirit to live holy lives. That's the story of the Bible. The story is a wedding story. It's a marriage story. It's about a father who sends a son to win a bride so that they can produce spiritual sons and daughters of God. Marriage is not an insignificant teaching in the Bible. As a matter of fact, the Bible says if you want to understand the gospel, look at a marriage. Because the way that a bride responds to the love and tenderness and grace of a loving husband is the way that the church responds to the love and the leading of Jesus Christ. Jesus is called the bridegroom in Scripture, and the church is called the bride. It's the mystery of the gospel. And that is what the Bible teaches. The Bible tells us that marriage is designed by God. It's defined by God. In Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2, Malachi chapter 2, and Matthew chapter 19, Jesus taught on marriage and affirmed everything that was in the Old Testament, including the fact that marriage is to be between one man and one woman for one lifetime. That one man and that one woman have complementary roles that are essential to the oneness in the marriage. The marriage will not thrive and the children that are raised in that home will not thrive the way that God wants them to unless both husband and wife for fulfilling their complementary role in the home. The Bible tells us that marriage is the safest place to grow godly children, Malachi 2.15. And marriage reflects the mystery of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And God is so serious about marriage, he wants us to protect it. And so he's put boundaries around it that govern our sexuality. And so because God loves marriage so much, he loves your marriage so much, he loves your children so much, he loves the future generations so much, he has said don't violate the sexual standards Keep your sexuality between that one man, one woman, one lifetime relationship, and it will go well for you. And so, therefore, the Bible has some things to say about pornography and about lust and about premarital sex and extramarital sex and homosexuality. He calls all of that sin. Sin that the Bible says can be forgiven and cleansed if a person will repent and believe the gospel. So what is marriage? Marriage is a holy covenant initiated by God and conditioned on an irrevocable promise to pursue oneness with an imperfect person of the opposite sex for a lifetime for the glory of God. That's what the Bible teaches about marriage. And we are going to affirm it at Harvest Bible Chapel as God's authority over our lives will allow what the Bible teaches to define what we believe about marriage. Unfortunately, in our culture, everything I just said somehow sounds hateful to people that have ignored God's definition of marriage. We don't say that because we're hateful. We say that because we love God, we love his word, and we actually love people that don't even believe the way that we believe. That's why, number three, we will not be silent, but we will not be screamers. Amen? We're not going to be hateful about what we believe. What we're going to do is stand for what's right. And we're going to understand that if you are wrong in the way that you are right... You are wrong even if you are right. We can be right about marriage and wrong about everything else that matters. We're going to get it right. So we've got to be constantly trying to go for a balance between conviction and compassion as we share our message. And we understand that those who disagree with us are not our enemy. They are the victim of our enemy. And we were once the victim of our enemy. And God set us free, and now it's our job. We are on a rescue mission to get those people that disagree and don't believe what God has said to understand that the safest place to live is under the authority of God's Word. And so we're going to humbly remember that we too once disbelieved what God said and were rebellious and ignoring what God has said. And so what we will do is we will become a place that will welcome everyone who has a learner's heart, no matter how entrapped or entangled they are in any sin. This is the place for those people to come. We will not be silent, but we will not be screamers. Number four, we will be a refugee camp for those ravaged by the sexual revolution. So many people feel like they finally got what will give them happiness, satisfaction, Enjoy. And what we know as Bible believing Christians is, despite everything I said about marriage, God did not design marriage, heterosexual or homosexual, to meet the deepest longings of your heart. 
those longings and those cravings you have are for Jesus. They're just misdirected. So when those people who involve themselves in things outside the boundaries that God has set for marriage, when those people are finally bloodied and beaten and bruised by all of that sin they've involved themselves in, we will be a refugee camp for those people to come and experience the grace and the love offered by Jesus Christ in forgiveness. We'll be a place where repentant people can find a new start and a new beginning through the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's how we're going to respond. Can I get an amen? amen? So, how does God heal a land? I want to give you three things. First of all, God persistently sends a messenger. In 2 Chronicles chapter 36, let me catch you up to speed before we dive into it here. As we said earlier, 2 Chronicles is a roller coaster ride. It's up and it's down. It's, it's high points with God and it's low points in sin. And the last king that we studied here in the book was Josiah in chapter 34. Do you remember him? He sought God's face. He became king when he was eight. He began to seek God's face when he was 16. At 20, he was doing an incredible work of reform and purging of the land. And God used him to send awakening in that country. Well, in chapter 35, Josiah made a dumb decision. He got involved in a fight he shouldn't have been involved in, and he got killed in the fight. You get to chapter 36, and it all starts going downhill again. And they start to decline, and they start to sin. It invites the discipline and the judgment of God. Rapid succession, he gives us four kings that are so worthless and evil, he doesn't even give us a whole lot of detail. And finally, we get to chapter 36, verse 15, and I want you to notice the condition of the land. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people. If you're not a believer, if you've never studied the Bible, and you have an idea that God is somehow not compassionate and gracious, would you just look at that verse? God loved these people so much. He was so compassionate. He gave them opportunity after opportunity to hear the message, believe the message, respond to the message, and divert his judgment. But it says here in verse 15, because he had been compassionate on his people and on his dwelling place, verse 16 but they kept mocking the messengers and despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people. Stop right there. Now, everything we just read has happened over and over and over throughout the book of 2 Chronicles. The people sin, it invites the wrath of God, God sends the wrath of God, they cry up, they repent, and they get back on track. But I want you to notice the last phrase of verse 16. Until there was no remedy. The spiritual disease that had infected that land was so great, there was no remedy this time. At times, it may seem as if there is no remedy to the spiritual disease that's affecting America. But the story doesn't end here. God always invites His people to repent and return. Well, I hope you'll tune in next week to hear part two of this message and to hear how God used a pagan king to restore God-centered worship in Israel and to fuel a spiritual awakening. 
And speaking of God-centered worship, I want to invite you to join us at Harvest Granger for one of our weekend worship services, Saturdays at 5 p.m. or Sundays at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. We're located on Hickory Road, just north of Cleveland Road in Granger, Indiana. Well, thanks for listening today. And it's my prayer that God's word will resonate in your heart and mind this week. Resonate is a radio ministry of Harvest Bible Chapel, Granger, harvestgranger.org.